Do you have big dreams, big plans? Well, you'll need a small rate. Royal Banks of Missouri can help build your future. Royal's home equity rates are at a historical low. And for a limited time, Royal Banks is offering one of the area's best home equity lines of credit. Call 314-212-1500 to talk to a representative today. Royal Banks of Missouri, investing in St. Louis for over 50 years. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Keith Costas podcast. I'm Bob Ramsey, and of course, the star of the show, Keith Costas, is here, the MLB Network Analyst. Keith, how are you this week? I'm good, Rammer, just where uh, just where we thought we'd be. What is it, 11 in a row now? Cardinals in control of their own destiny. Pretty much a playoff lock, it looks like. Saw it coming all along, so all good. You know, and um, whether it's the the rare division race or the uh, the wild card stuff, um, just the minute you think you've got a handle on a team or a race, something changes and happens. And I started to go through and look, and I wanted to get your thoughts as, as we kind of break some of these things down with, you know, what, uh, a week and a half uh, or so, almost two weeks, a little less than two weeks to go, um, trying to find key moments or um, key personnel either coming back into the into the lineup or rotation or bullpen or coming out that might have an effect on this thing. You mentioned the St. Louis Cardinals who have won 11 a row. And, and who knows, by the time people are watching uh, the Keith Costas podcast, it, it could be 12 or um, at the very least three and uh, three out of four against the first place Milwaukee Brewers. But as we take a look at this, let's start with the Cardinals. And um, as a guy who covers the Cardinals on a daily basis, Trying to find an exact moment there where it turned is pretty difficult. But I've kind of set on like August 25th when John Lester went on his run of uh, six out of seven terrific starts. Yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, it's kind of unbelievable when, I mean, you said it, things can change so quickly. We've gone from just panning the Cardinals trade deadline acquisitions, the least they could possibly do to possibly being the key to the whole season, as you just said. Now, today, recording this on Thursday morning, I thought this was pretty interesting. Wainwright going today against the Brewers is going to be the 50th start of the year where Schilt has handed the ball to somebody with 15-plus years of Major League experience. Think about that. Between Hap, Wainwright, and Lester, I'm not saying you can get by and win a World Series just on experience and guile, obviously, but that's pretty unique in terms of having that type of – you know, experience and craftsmanship on the mound. You have to go all the way back to the 2007 Red Sox, who, by the way, won the World Series. And I do think it's kind of interesting. I'm not comparing this club to that 07 club that still had Manny and Ortiz. But you go back and look at that Red Sox team. It wasn't exactly the same bunch that won in 04 and won again in 13 when the Cardinals faced him. It wasn't this. Now, they still had a good offense and the game was different then, but Manny had 20-something home runs that year. Mike Lowell was the World Series MVP. Great player, but, I mean, it's not – It's not Johnny Damon was gone. It was a young Pedroia. It wasn't the top-to-bottom kind of stacked Red Sox lineups, at least by the standards of of the teams they sent to the World Series over the last couple of decades. It wasn't that stacked offense that we've come to uh, expect from those AL East clubs. That pitching and that experience, guys like Schilling, who's obviously Hall of Fame caliber pitcher, but also right. you know the Tim Wakefields of the world, they had guys that had been in those spots and knew how to pitch and knew how yeah. to execute a game plan. And at the very least, even if it's five innings, three runs, six innings, four runs that you're depending on, 
it's that kind of dependability that makes it a little easier to manage down the stretch. You're not going to get from those guys, even if they're not going to go out and shut teams out, you're not going to get the two innings, five runs. And now all of a sudden your bullpen's blowing up for the next five or six days. So those moves that they made, and I like you keying in on Lester kind of turning the corner there in August, that's been obviously something people have talked a lot about, but I'm not sure people really appreciate how rare it is to have that kind of experience all going into rotation together. So that's definitely been a big key for me as well. Two more Cardinal points and then we'll move on. So, so everybody else is interested, but the, uh, uh, the Cardinal defense has been pretty darn good all year, but now with a, with a set lineup um, it's um, and I, I wonder if analysis um, backs it up, but uh to me, it's been, you know, a month, six weeks, maybe a little longer, just off the charts, not just not making mistakes, but go, going over and above to make plays. Um, and almost every night we're seeing at least one player, and usually it's multiple players, doing something way out of the ordinary to make a defensive play. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought we talked last week about having a chance to go to that Cardinals-Mets series and see a couple of those games. I'm not sure that the Mets or that the Cardinals rather have more talent than the Mets just on paper, but it just seemed like the Cardinals made every play that needed to be converted. They're taking outs, they're taking outs away on the field. They're taking extra bases on the base pass. I mean, no better example than last night, that quirky play with Bader. I mean, you know, you go on an 11 game winning streak, you're going to be able to spin any kind of narrative you want because everything's coming up roses, but does it get any better than that Bader scoring from second on that sack fly? So yeah, the athleticism, has really played up. The defense has been really impressive and the numbers certainly back it up. I know we touched on this previously too, but just look at the batting averages on balls and play for Hap and Lester with their last teams compared to the teams they came to. I know that's an oversimplification, but that really is the crux of it. I mean, they both were coming from teams that weren't particularly adept defensively to a team that the numbers say, and the eye test is certainly starting to line up with these last couple of weeks is the best defensive team in baseball. So I do think that that has, uh, kind of worked hand in hand with the first point we were making about the pitching and that has kind of been the MO of the team, you know, the last couple of years. And that's kind of, I'm sure what they wanted to hang their hat on going into the season, get enough offense, get good veteran pitching and catch the ball. And that's how they're going to be in the mix. And fast forward six months here, they are in the mix with that exact formula. And the Cardinal offense has been terrible all year, but suddenly it's very good. And, um, and this one is not as easy to quantify but um, if I was looking for sort of the, the last piece of the puzzle, because you're getting contributions from everybody, but the last piece to the puzzle, I think, is about the same time as the Lester run, and that is Mike Schilt, without declaring it clearly and obviously putting Edmundo Sosa in its shortstop. He'll make an occasional error, but he's hitting over well over 300 as a starter and one more now half of their starting lineup has elite speed. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, you know what you're going to get from the guys in the corners, you know, what you're going to get from Molina. And I think at this point, you know what you're going to get from Edmund. So you said it, fill that hole at shortstop where DeYoung had been so hit or miss. I mean, how weird was it to Mostly see a series miss. against? Yeah, exactly. How weird was it to see a series against the Mets where he basically had no role at all after he's right. the way he's killed them over the last couple of years. So yeah, he, we've seen him get hot at times, but mostly it's just been so many strikeouts and such a low batting average for the better part of the last couple of years that I'm with you getting Sosa in there as more of a contact guy an average oriented guy, obviously not going to hit for the power that DeYoung does, but that's been a great switch and how rewarding must it be 
for Mo and the entire front office. It took some time, but again, you can kind of cherry pick what you want during an 11 game winning streak because everything's going to be going well. But right. this outfield group of O'Neill, Bader, and Carlson, they've scored or driven in something like 65% of the runs during the win streak. I mean, I know we've talked a lot about O'Neill and he's been recognized kind of throughout the national scene as one of the big breakout players of the season, but mm -hmm. You know, Carlson has had some really nice moments the last couple of weeks. Bader's had his moments too. And the thing is, I don't feel like they're playing, you know, over their skis, so to speak. Those right. three guys basically look what like what a good version of themselves should look like the right. last couple of weeks. And so I think we're finally seeing what uh what Mo and the front office kind of thought that they had in that outfield group. And it doesn't make it any easier to swallow that a Rosarena is probably going to be the rookie of the year in the American League. I know people like to write it off as a kind of fluky, historic, otherworldly performance last October, which it certainly was, but he's proven that he's a guy that's yeah. going to be able to hit 20 plus homers and be a 270, 280-ish hitter. So that one still stings a little bit, but this outfield group has uh, has really come together nicely here over the last couple of weeks. So let's move on to to the rest of baseball and Let's talk about another team on a streak, and we really hadn't been talking about them much. And I'm talk, trying to find, again, personnel catalyst. And I wonder, even though the offense is terrific in Boston, is Chris Sale the catalyst for them to get them going? Maybe because it's only every fifth day, but more emotional than anything? Yeah, I'm with you there. We've got Yankees, Red Sox coming up this weekend. So I've been looking at that series and that whole race. And I do think that that's probably when you're talking Yankees, Red Sox, specifically, one of the big storylines is that Chris Sale and Luis Severino basically had Tommy John around the same time. Severino is actually about a month earlier, end of February of last year. Sale had it right before opening day of the 2020 season, but Sale beat not only beat him back, he's back in the rotation where Severino just got back on the field, had a couple of setbacks. He's pitching out of the bullpen and the Red Sox, 6-1 and one, in sales, 7 starts. So, I mean, you look at how close those two teams were, you know, in August when the Yankees went on that big winning streak and the Red Sox looked to be fading a little bit. Now the now the Red Sox are on a winning streak and they've got sale rolling and the 6-1, and one, the emotional pickup, like you mentioned, of just knowing that they've got that guy right. sitting there for a potential wild card matchup. Yeah, Chris Sale is going to be a big factor in this race, and I do think, I mean, it's a lot of pressure to put on a guy like Luis Severino saying you're going to come back and just hit the ground running given everything that he's dealt with. It hasn't just been Tommy John for him. He had a shoulder thing, an ankle thing, all kinds of things. But I do think in that matchup in particular, that's kind of an interesting, uh, you know, you talked about the turning points with John Lester back in August. I think that the way that the Red Sox have been able to supplement their staff with their former ace compared to what the Yankees have not yet gotten from their former ace on their staff is probably going to be something we look back on as a big, big factor in how things play out in the American League East, and they, more importantly, in the wild card race. I want to go to um, kind of our favorite underdog story, and that's the Seattle Mariners. They've now won four in a row. Here is my – boy, I'm kind of throwing this against the wall to, to you decide what to do with it. Rather than adding a player, I think their short little win streak here that's, that's kept their hopes alive is moving Hanniger – from the two spot to the four spot and, and giving them more opportunities to drive in runs. Am I on to anything there? Yeah, I think you're on to something there. I mean, when he first came up, he looked like a, a complete all around player that was just on the, on the verge of stardom. Yeah. But since he's come back after his, you know, missing time and, and kind of being an afterthought after all the time that he missed, he's really been more of a guy who's better suited, like you said, to hit in the middle of the lineup, the top of the lineup. I mean, we thought he was going to be a guy with a huge on base percentage. He's really been more, 
of a run producer than a table setter. So I'm with you. I'm actually surprised it took him that long to make that move. But yeah, yeah I, I, I need to eat my words from last week. I was still kind of holding on to hope that the A's would be a team that snuck in there just because I know they've been banged up. I know they've had their issues, but they just have that DNA. They've been there so often recently. I figured they'd be able to write the ship, but you know, they're going to play Seattle and Houston the rest of their schedule and Seattle just won't go away. So I do think that ultimately the two teams in the wild card race are going to come out of the American league East, but I would have never guessed that the Mariners would be able to go toe to toe with the A's for this long for that second spot in the American league West. And at least in theory, keeping themselves in the mix for the actual wild card spot. One lineup nerd thought regarding the athletics, see what you think about this. Their resurgence, I think, was when they um, put both Harrison and Marte at the top of the order, talking about the athletics. Mm -hmm. This past week or so, Harrison has really cooled off. And I think that, you know, you know, sometimes I think in modern ball, we don't aren't as concerned about who's leading off and what they're doing in games. I again, you know, I grew up. Lou Brock is my hero. So I, I put a lot of weight on the leadoff spot. And I, and I think that has really hurt the A's this last week. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, anybody watching this in St. Louis, all they need to do is look at this winning streak, how much damage they've done right off the bat in the first innings here. So, yeah, Josh Harrison, uh, you know, he's had he was almost dead in the water. It felt like a couple of years ago. He was having a hard time finding a job and was able to turn things around, you know, in D.C. where they yeah. – where they tend to give those types of players a soft landing spot at times. And it ended up winning a world series with a lot of guys like that, the Howie Kendricks of the world, the Adam Eaton's yep. of the world. So got himself back going there. And and you're right. He Harrison doesn't really strike me as a normal A's kind of player, but they obviously saw something similar right. to what you saw as an igniter up there with what they could do, matching him and Marte and getting guys with a little more athleticism and, and kind of not that, that, ultra, ultra patient, just work the count approach that the A's have kind of become famous for. So yeah, I'm with you. The top of that lineup has, uh, has been a big key for them. And, you know, Josh Harrison, nice season, but I guess at the end of the day, it's not all that surprising to see, uh, to see him kind of run out of gas at the end, given where his career has been going the last couple of years. Um, but I, we've, we've talked about often, I'm kind of that underdog guy. So if it's not the Mariners, I'd love for him and the A's to get hot again and see what happens. Let's switch to the National League, back to lineup nerd stuff. It's interesting, the last few days, the Braves have put Solaire in the leadoff spot and dropped Albies down to a power spot. I'm really, really interested to see if that's going to work. Solaire, not normally an on-base guy, but he was on base twice yesterday. And that, uh, you know, with the Phillies and on the on, right on the heels of the Braves, trying to find those little moves and little personnel moves to make something click is going to be fascinating. Yeah. I guess when you're the Braves and you've got what five, six guys with 25 ish homers in your lineup, it's a little different proposition in yes. terms of what type of profile you're going to put, you're going to put where when you've got mashers up and down, but yeah, I mean, give, Brian Snedeker, a lot of credit for the way that they've battled through this entire season. I mean, they basically reinvented the entire outfield on the fly. It's one thing to replace all three guys with three new guys, but to now have the guy who just a couple years ago was setting the Royals franchise record for home runs as your leadoff hitter with your five foot eight second baseman moving down to the middle of the lineup. Yeah, that kind of openness and that kind of uh, willingness to manipulate his lineup is something not to be overlooked, especially with the guy like Snitker, who's more of an old school guy. You look at the Braves last year and the past couple years since they've been rolling, they're kind of a old school Baltimore Orioles type of attack where he plays those guys oh, yeah. 
I mean, he wants to play those guys every single day. If they had their way in Atlanta, their top four or five players would all be playing 155 games a year. That's a lineup that gets written in stone in spring training and has been run out there basically as is from start to finish for the last couple of years. So to have that kind of openness and willingness to move things around and not just move them around, but do it in a completely unconventional way, like you mentioned with Solaire and all these kind of flipping spots, give him a lot of credit there. I agree. Um, let's go back to one division race that's still fascinating. And we, we talk about him. We, we've been locked in um, on the National League West all year. The Dodgers now – Two games behind the Giants, the Giants are just ridiculous with Long here. Now, here's their guy that might be their catalyst, and that's Longoria coming back and performing at a very high level. And they can have six or seven guys in the lineup every day with a 500 plus slug. That that blows my mind. It's unbelievable, especially given where Longoria is hitting. I mean, the idea that he would go to San Francisco and somehow refine himself. I know he's been there for a little bit. It's not like he just showed up like Bryant, but the idea that he would be able, even with the injuries he's dealt with this year and the problems he's had staying on the field, that he would be able to get back to being that type of player you're talking about that provides legitimate power in that park. I mean, I would have never considered that that was a possibility. He looked like an albatross of a contract. I mean, he's still, he's still got a couple more years to go on that extension he initially signed with Tampa Bay out there in San Francisco. So, yeah, I'm with you there, too. I mean, their lineup has been just unbelievable throughout the season, and we've talked a lot about those veteran presence in the lineup, be it Belt or Crawford or Posey and certainly Longoria, even though he hasn't been there for as long as those guys, obviously. But I got to eat my, eat my words there on the West Coast, too, in the National League because I've just thought all along, even if the Giants end up winning 100 games, the Dodgers were just going to find some way to run them down. It still might happen, but you can count the grains, uh, grains of sand in the hourglass at this point, so maybe it's time for me <laughs> to just concede that the Giants probably are going to have the upper hand in this race, and it's going to be the Dodgers in the wild card spot. You know, what's interesting, when I look at the, again, I line up nerd again, when I go back and look, you thought when Betts came back, that was going to that was going to be the catalyst but you know a guy that i think has really been underrated and i think they've missed is pollock even though yeah, they've thought, had some good people off the bench filling in i think they really miss pollock i thought that's what you were going to say and they just got him back so yeah, yeah he's been unbelievable for uh really since going back to like mid june or so he's been one of the better hitters in the league obviously was sidelined there for a bit and just getting back but yeah, the uh, the diversity that they're able to throw out in their lineup, we know how they like to match up right, left, and move guys all over the field. Pollock has been a nice, steady piece for them from the right side for sure, especially with the way that Bellinger has been uh, has been prone to just being a complete non-factor at points this season. To have a guy like A.J. Pollock, who obviously is not Cody Bellinger in terms of his age and athleticism, but at one point he was a pretty close approximation to what – to what Cody Bellinger was yeah. different kinds of players, but still yeah. a guy that can run around and do some things and hit for a lot of power. So yeah, he's been a, he's been a very nice piece for them. And, uh, and Chris Taylor, obviously another guy who's been good for them for most of the year and has kind of faded in the second half compared to what he did in the, in the first half. But I mean, that's what the Dodgers are. You can talk all you want about those superstars at the top, but then you peel back the layers and you look at those next 10 players after those guys. And yeah. that's where they really separate themselves from the rest of the league. Cause they've got guys that will be playing every day for virtually any other team in the league that are, you know, just trying to get in the lineup three, four times a week for them. Yeah. You know, I think um, I, something in the back of my head still tells me with, with Pollock back with Kershaw back, 
I still think they're only two out. I think they're going to yep. catch the Giants. I mean, I've been saying it all year, so I should probably just have the guts just to stick with, with it. it at this at this point in the season. <laughs> but but I can see uh, I can see the the doors closing on me here. So I'm at least allowing for the possibility that maybe the Giants will just will just outlast everybody and stay right there. Something we maybe we can zero in on more next week. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, on handicapping MVP stuff um, real quick. Because I think a number of the the so-called races, if you will, um, are, are pr- close enough that a, a big push in the final ten days or so um, could make a difference. Maybe who who are you liking right now um, uh, in each league? Well, here's one I'll throw out for you for the National League. Harper has overtaken Tatis as the favorite, and I do think you know for better or worse, it's probably more just good fodder for guys like us talking about things and radio shows and TV shows and whatnot. But I do think that the little spat with Tatis and Machado in the dugout gives the voters something to have in the back of their mind that, hey, Tatis didn't play the whole season. The Padres fell apart at the end of the year. Tatis was at the center of, you know, kind of the poster moment for their collapse. I think that's going to be in voters' heads a little. So whereas a week ago I thought that Harper was kind of a charging dark horse and that Tatis still had the upper hand, I would at this point be surprised if Tatis was able to win it. So I think you have to give Harper the edge there. But this is what this is the one I'll throw out for you. If we're voting for Bryce Harper based on the idea that he's the best hitter in the majors and he has the highest OPS, if you just want to pick out one kind of you know overreaching number, he's the highest OPS in MLB. Why are we not talking about Max Scherzer with the lowest ERA in MLB and a 9-0 and record for the Dodgers? If the Dodgers chase down the Giants, is Max Scherzer a viable candidate for the MVP? If you want to focus in on the V and the valuable part, I would say he's a guy who should at least get some thought, and I really haven't heard it talked about very much. And if you look at the odds out in Vegas, you know Harper's a, like a minus 175 to win the MVP right now, and, and Scherzer's something like plus – 20,000 or something ridiculous. I mean, he's way, way down the list of guys that are that are in the mix in terms of the odds out in Vegas. So I don't know, Max Scherzer, is there another player who's tech, who's been more valuable to their team than what he's done since coming over from the trade deadline, especially, and really only, if they're able to run down the Giants? I mean, if Max Scherzer is the difference between them playing a one-game playoff and waltzing in to a five-game series, I don't know, maybe something to consider. How many voters, because that's how I always look at these things, how many voters would be willing to step back, kind of think a little bit outside the box, because over the decades, um, the voters have sort of divided. Okay, the pitchers got their thing, the hitters got theirs. There have been a couple of pitchers that won them both, but um, will will guys be willing to think outside the box and, and, and make a move? I think your argument is very strong. The only thing that I think gives it some credence that maybe people will be willing to see it that way is if the Phillies miss the playoffs and Bryce Harper, I mean, I'm more inclined to focus on his rate stats in terms of trying to quantify what type of player he's been. But yeah. at, at the end of the day, he's going to end up with something like, you know, 80 RBIs. Like it's not like he's going to have this back of the baseball card that's like a, you know, like a peak Frank Thomas season or something like that right. or, a, right. or a peak trout season where it's just like, well, you know, clearly this is a, this is a, you know, season that looks like something from Jimmy Fox in the thirties or something. That's not what his numbers are going to look like as good as they are. So I think it's going to be, if Harper's the choice, I think it's going to be a choice that voters aren't 
overly enthusiastic about making. And that's no disrespect to Harper. I just don't think that it's such a – it's almost like he might win it by default. Tatis not playing enough games. You know, it's hard to separate Freeman and Riley from each other. Muncy's faded a little bit. Is, yeah. you know, is Max yeah. Muncy really going to be the MVP on a loaded roster like that with all kinds of position player power? So, I don't know. I just think that there's not a traditional slam dunk winner. And when you take a step back, I mean, I do think that there's going to be – a lot of attention being paid to Max Scherzer these last couple of days of the season. If it does play out that way, where the where they're uh, where they're neck and neck with the Giants, so who knows? Maybe Mad Max can add a uh, add an MVP to what might be his fourth Cy Young this year if he uh, ends up being the winner. I really like that in the American League from day one. Otani has kind of been um, the populist choice, uh, but I think I think there are other viable candidates on contenders. I'm not so sure that's as much of a slam dunk as I think we might have said in June. Yeah, I mean, Vlad is certainly charging hard, but I do think at the end of the day, it's going to be very similar to me to when Otani won the Rookie of the Year. If you think back to that year, Miguel Andujar on the Yankees actually had better offensive numbers, and it wasn't really that close either because Andujar was playing every day for the Yankees. Otani was going back and forth. They were still trying to kind of experiment. He was banged up a little that first year, but – just the idea that he was able to deliver in that rookie year on actually being, oh, this guy clearly is a very, very good hitter and a very, very good pitcher, even if he hadn't quite put it together to this level that he has now. Yeah. It, it kind of carried the day, and people were just – he was such a freak and a total unicorn that people just felt like they had to vote for him, and I think that that's going to carry the day again in the MVP race. But it is tough to see a guy like Vlad Guerrero basically be what peak Vlad Guerrero was thought to be potentially capable of he's basically right. delivered on that to the same degree that Otani has delivered on what he was uh what he was hoped to be it's just that he's two players in one and that's going to be hard for anybody else to put up that kind of resume it just kind of is what it is yeah that's exactly right so tell us again before we go what um what MLB Network has coming up uh, here as we get the races wind down yeah, Yankees Red Sox for us this weekend on the on the game production side. So it can't really get much better than that. I mean, you got four teams that are gonna end up with like 86, 87, 88 wins in the American League East. So it's still entirely possible that either one of these teams on Saturday yeah. could end up in fourth place or they could end up winning the World Series. So it's kind of nice when uh, we get to treat these baseball games like football games and just say this is a huge game. It's not just one of one sixty-two. These games in Boston this weekend are huge games. So that's what's uh, in the immediate future for us. And then obviously the rest of the way, just covering the pennant races that last week is always one of the most fun weeks at MLB network. Cause that's when we get to bounce around to all the games like we do throughout the season, but it's the best way to follow a pennant race. Obviously I'm biased, but I can't really think of a better way to follow it. Also MLB network and MLB tonight specifically. We'll have everybody covered for that. Yeah. If people aren't following the, the races, as you said all the time, but in particular the last week, there is no doubt that you guys have figured it out. You know what baseball fans want, and you guys deliver without question. It will be fun. And when we talk next week, will everything be decided? I say no chance. I think it's going to be madness all the way to the last day. Most things possibly, everything, not a chance. And if everything's not decided, there's always poss the possibility for drama. So that's what we've drama. gotten used to, and that's what I'm expecting. Keith, it's great talking to you uh, as always. Uh, have fun with the Yankees and the Red Sox, and we'll visit again next week on the Keith Costas Podcast. All right, Rammer, thanks.